with a track titled There Is A Light That Never Goes Out that's taken from the album The Queen Is Dead. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. 
Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade that was the 80s. And this week's special guest is going to be the turn of Neil Taylor, the NME journalist who helped to compile the iconic cassette that changed the musical landscape of this country, if not the world. So I've got that into that I'm going to break up into, I don't know, three little sections for your delight. But before we have that exciting um, start, I think we should play a track from the cassette. This is Primal Scream and that classic that we all grew to love. <clears throat> he says, it's called Philosophy Girl. Short and sharp, that's Primal Scream and that's Velocity Girl. That was the first and opening track on side one of the NME cassette titled C86. Coming in at 1 minute and 22 seconds. Indeed, we'd like to uh, keep an eye on it. Yes, you can pack a lot into one show if you have um, songs that all come under the two-minute mark. I know, I grew up listening to prog rock and... Um, Yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, and I have to say, none of it lasted one hour, one minute and twenty seconds at all. Actually, most of it, they wouldn't have even had a bass solo that lasted that long. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C eighty six show, and like I said, this week's special guest is going to be Neil Taylor, who was the enemy journalist at the time, who, alongside Roy Carr and also Adrian Thrills, put together that iconic twenty two track cassette back in 1986 get it um so i'm going to play one more song and then we'll have the first part of the interview that i did with neil last year in fact so look this is going to be we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and this is titled console me and for a million points how long does this song last Oh, well, 
You see, we were very excitable in the good old days that were the 80s. That is, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it with the track titled Console Me. And that comes in at 1 minute and 24 seconds. And that was produced by Richard Lloyd and came out on Vindaloo Records and was probably on the album Boston, Steve Austin. Anyway, do you want any more admin? Yes? No? Who knows? Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Um, A little bit later, I'll tell you how you can contact me. If you want to find any of the archives, you can just go to Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, uh, Podbean. It's just go C86 Show. It's all there. I've been um, tracking down all these bands over the last couple of years. It's been an amazing journey, and I'm enjoying every second. But before any more music and any more admin, I think we should have the first part of the interview with Neil Taylor. And this is where I asked Neil a little bit about the background and history behind this iconic and the most important cassette compilation that's ever been recorded. Neil, take it away. Okay. well, um, C86 was an LME uh, cassette, which they sold through the uh, through the newspaper, sort of gave it away. But you had to collect up tokens and send in postage and then four weeks later this cassette um, dropped through your door it was one of a a sequence of um, NME cassettes which had begun in 1981 with C81 Um, and obviously the title C81 and C86 um, both of those reflect the cassette culture of the time where one would buy a cassette that was a C90 or a C30 or a C60, denoting the amount of minutes on the cassette. Um, that's how C81 came about, and that's why C86 was called C86. Um, the enemy up until that point had done 22, I think, of these tapes. Um, by far the most successful had been the first one, C81. Um, and they felt that there was a sufficient groundswell of new indie bands uh, come the start of 1986 to uh, mimic, if you like, C81, and um, and and that's what they did. And the 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 cassette sales wise started off slowly, uh, but um, then picked up, um, and then didn't fly, but but just simply continued to sell and sell. And we're talking about going on for uh, a year or so, um, possibly longer. Um, these cassettes were had a you know, a kind of um, predetermined end life in that the enemy would do three or four a year. So they were looking at uh, a window of opportunity of 12 weeks. But with C86, it went on and it, in fact, became the best-selling non-charity NME cassette that uh, was done. Yes, because quite interestingly, with um, that whole world of both cassettes and the NME, it's hard to believe now when you find the NME, which is quite hard, in this area, that um, it had a huge print run and a massive influence on youth culture and music, didn't it? Well, it did. Um, I mean, again, to go back to 1981, I think um, I think I do. I think I know these figures because I think I looked them up when I was doing some research. But the um, sales figures in 1981 were something like 260,000 copies a week. Now, what that um, translates into you know is is a, is a sort of actual readership of sort of 1.3 million or something um by the time 1986 rolled around um there were plenty of other um things out there competing for attention you know you had video games um um many things now were coming coming to to the market that i think made pop music not the sole 
respite of the young um, and the not so young. Um, and um, so the sales figures come 1986, I think had dropped down to something like 130,000. Certainly at the NME, we were always getting, you know, badgered that oh, we've got to get the sales figures up. We've got to get the sales figures up. Um, and in a sense, that's all the more surprising that C86 did so well because it outsold C81. So um, there was obviously something going on, something in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it was interesting because I, I still have all those NME cassettes, which I obviously just bought because, you know, I felt like I needed to. Because it was weird because there was a paper that did champion sort of um, indie music mostly and had bands like the Primitives and the Wolfhounds and all that. There was kind of cassettes which were like country and western, jazz, blues, dance and reggae, didn't they? You know, so it was quite an eclectic mix of cassettes that they actually released during those uh, that particular period. Well, it was, you know, I mean, they did a punk one and... Um which was just before, I think, C86. Um, I think it was called Pogo A Go Go. And if you look at it now, I mean, there was something like 12 tracks on it. And, you know, you think anyone doing a compilation today, um, a la Cherry Red, who are the sort of you know, masters of putting this stuff out and repackaging it, you know, they'd laugh at a 12-track compilation. But this compilation sold because at the time you just could not get the material. And, you know, there was no YouTube. There was no um, no no way to access a lot of this material. Yeah, that's true, because actually that's the other thing that often I, I sort of realised, that we only had john peel to possibly hear a song before you bought it or you had to trust a journalist which was a disaster in my case mostly because because often you'd get a you know single of the week by the nme and go oh i must go and buy that and then oh my god that was awful so you had to listen to john peel with your trusty c90 cassette to record and then hopefully you'd you'd hear something within that show that you thought yes i must go and buy that yeah, it, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? I remember Orange Juice talking about the fact that, you know, when they got going in Glasgow, they had no idea really what punk was. I mean, they they, 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 they kind of heard about it, they'd read about it, but they, 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 weren't, um, they weren't as informed as, as, as obviously a person would be today where you're sort of instantly connected. Um, so they made their own idea of punk up and this carried on right through. I remember Sean Dixon from the Soup Dragons saying to me for the book that, um, you know, that by the time they were getting going in sort of 85, possibly earlier, you know, they had no idea how to dress really. So they would Norman Blake and him and various others would, you know, just get dressed up in tartan trousers that they could find and, and any old accoutrements to, uh, to, to, to make them look what they thought was the sort of indie look. Yes. And obviously, <clears throat> talking about that cassette and the fact that there was 22 tracks, was it difficult to particularly find those 22 bands and tracks, or did you have more than you needed? Um, well, there was definitely more than, than, than was needed. I mean, my kind of input, although it was significant, you know, I was still one-third of the sort of uh, people who at least in a titular way, uh, accredited with putting the tape together. Um, in, in one sense, it was probably just Adrian Thrills and myself, but other people had input. Um, for instance, I know that the journalist Tom Watson was a big Age of Chance fan, which was great. Um, and, um, you know, there were, there were, there were, there were various, um, uh, various points of input from, um, from, from, from various other, uh, uh, other people. Um, it was difficult because um, 
there were certain bands that really one would have liked to have had on there, like Felt and the June Brides. And um, personally, I would have liked to have seen Yeah, Yeah, No on there. Um, but it was a sort of fairly Stalinistic, uh, fairly Stalinist approach to the compilation. So um, it sounds absurd now, but it was almost as though if it was older than three months, it was too old to bother with which is absurd of course um so um and then of course the tape initially suffered from the fact that a number of people kept their um uh kept their goodies back and um you know took the enemy's money and um and, and used it to record other tracks and then just gave a sort of lesser uh, uh track to the enemy yes well, it was, it was interesting because obviously one of those bands that got asked, and this was kind of that thing that uh, at the time I, I kind of gather from speaking to people, a lot of uh, a lot of the bands and artists kind of wanted to distance themselves and sort of were quite derogatory about that whole term, you know, C86. And I sort of believe that it was, yes, and people like Alan McGee was one. And also the June Brides didn't actually want to be on the cassette either, did they? No, the June Brides... Um passed up and as a result of that i think the close lobsters ended up on the um on the cassette um but um you know one one needs to bear in mind that c86 really really was this sort of artificial moniker and that um most of the music that i associate with c86 was really happening in 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 1985 um and um you know the enemy obviously had to choose a um uh, 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 a title for it um i think alan's slightly disingenuous really because um you know they certainly put a lot of effort in and put some of their best tracks on there the bodines and and of course primal scream um as for the june brides i mean the june brides didn't want to be on there because they didn't want to um you know sort of be be typecast in a way um but um as I say in the book, you know, the irony is that everybody got typecast, whether you were on it or not, because it became this sort of hoovering up phrase, which uh, which it was never, ever intended to be. Indeed, a tricky time. But anyway, we survived it vaguely. Um, that is the first part of my interview with Neil Taylor talking about the C86 world. And uh, for those who may be interested, Cherry Red Records has put out quite a few compilations recently, um, a C86 C87, 88 and an 89 um, CD box set. I think most of them are triple packs, lots of sleeve notes and normally coming in with about 66 um, hard to find records. So do check those out. And also Neil Taylor did bring out a book last year titled C86 and all that. The Creation of Indie in Difficult Times, it's called. And uh, you can also track that down, though it is a bit tricky. I do believe the website is www. And then it's um, Ink Monkeys, no, Ink Monkey Editions.com. I know, it's so exciting. Um, this is David Esau, this is the C86 show, and this is going to be a track that wasn't even on the cassette. That's how loose and free I'm playing it today. So this is going to be Meow and the track titled Bellevue. <laughs>
And that is Meow, featuring the one and only Kath Carroll on vocals and probably songwriting duties. This year, that was titled um, Bellevue, and that came from the album When It All Comes Down. And the um, track that appears on the C86 cassette compilation is um, a different one. It's titled Sport Most Royal. I'm not sure why I played the other one. But anyway, I was just feeling loose and free and very excitable. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Um, If you want to contact me, uh, Twitter, Facebook is probably the best way. Just go to at C86 and I will be there. Um, And like I said, most of the shows have all been sort of now archived and podcast. So you can go to Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud... And Podbean, C86 show. And um, yes, just delve, dive in and have your amazing delight. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Neil Taylor, one of the journalists at the NME who helped compile that iconic cassette. And this is where we were talking, or I was at least rambling on, as I sometimes do, about the narrative of a band which normally lasts for five years. I know, almost to the week. And this was Neil's reply. Neil? What was your reply? Well, it does. It's um, you know that that may well just be an 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 inherent inbuilt thing in a kind of DIY process where funds are sort of um, you know, not quite as um, flush as uh, that you know you might you might want them to be. I mean, you know, e- even those bands recording for you know the mighty Rough Trade. Um, I'm thinking of the bands that went there post postcard so Aztec Hammer and bands like that you know I mean I mean I mean they weren't limitless funds and, and even Rough Trade you know regularly ran out of money and of course ultimately the whole thing uh, um, collapsed so um, it may well be that it is you know part and parcel of the time I mean nowadays um, it seems to me that some bands you know music seems less important than than, um, than having, you know, taken an MBA or something or being on a business course to work out how the structure's going to work. But um, um, it was fun. It was, yes, it was very good. So fast forwarding a few decades, you then sort of appeared again to do the uh, the CD package with good good old Cherry Red Records, who really did hoover everything up and um, repackaged with nice booklets. So you brought out the, the sort of triple CD um almost box set of the C86, didn't you, with 66 yeah. songs. So that must have been quite a relief because obviously with like being able to look back, realise, you know, who else you could have got and bands, you know, like the June Brides were more than happy probably to be part of the, yeah. the reissue. So that must have been a lot of fun putting that compilation together. Well, it was. Every, everybody, um, I mean, the most extraordinary thing about that reissue actually was that... Um, when you try and do these kind of reissue compilations, I mean, they are fraught with enormous difficulty because there's always going to be one band who says, oh, no, I've done it. I don't want to be on it. Um, and I was involved with the um, CD compilation that Cherry Red did, Another Splash of Colour. And I think on that you'll find that not all of the bands appeared. I may be wrong, but I'm not sure everybody kind of agreed to be on that. Um, but with C86, there were a few um, backwards and forwards chats um but all 22 artists agreed to be on the um on 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 on, on that cd and um and yes it was it was you know important to to broaden it out i mean again there were problems felt for instance um i mean the irony is that those first five felt albums are now coming out through cherry red but at the time of c86 the reissue um they were proving very difficult to to license material from um 
so obviously they, they, they should be on there, but they're not. Yes. So then, so because quite interestingly, there's now C87 and 88, but then you thought, I'm going to bring a book out, which obviously is great because there, there isn't really any books on the, in, the, in the marketplace that sort of deals with, with this particular kind of, um, kind of genre, really. So how did, um, so when you had the idea, um, sort of it, then you did your crowdfunding, what was the process of putting the book together? Because obviously having the idea is one thing and actually bringing it through to publication and printing is another well, yeah. When I, I, I mean, I, I, when I began C eighty six and all that, I mean, I, in, in, there was a, a couple of things I wanted to correct. Really, one was the um, sort of um, the sort of misnomer that 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 this was some sort of weedy and um, passing and 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 super hype moment. Um, and two, I wanted to. Um, not so much correct, but at least give voice to some of the more marginal figures who played a part. Um, now, when I came to do the book, the, the simplest um, launching off point was to focus roughly on Alan McGee's creation of the Living Room Club, um, which sort of began in 1983. Um, and um, uh, so I sort of began really on chapter four in a way. Um, but I always knew I would be moving backwards as well. Um, I wanted to include the the psychedelic, uh, the the neo the new psychedelic movement, um, because through that movement, bands like the television personalities, you know, found found their sort of meteor in a way. Um, and obviously, I wanted to include bands like the television personalities. Then going back even further. Um, one wanted to look at the origins of, of, of the influences, really. But I didn't go all the way back to punk. And I think the, the launching off point really was the uh, was the issuing in you know December 1982 of um, of um, Pillows and Prayers, the sort of seminal compilation album with Marine Girls and Felt and Nightingales and um, Monochrome Set and lots of other you know um, wonders. So that was how the book began taking its shape. And then as it progressed it became important to me to reflect the kind of um broader church if you like of this this indie music you know i remember going to shows in 1983 and it was possible to go to a show and have a you know a, a full-on indie band playing alongside you know a neo rockabilly band um i think these these genres if that's the right word you know became compartmentalized after purely so that they could be marketed more easily um but it was much more of a melting pot so therefore all of that had to go into the book and then you know there's a section on the milkshakes and the stingrays and and and, and the rise of that and, and the origins and then i also wanted to put in a section on um sort of new american guitar music which was you know begins with paisley and sort of ends with sonic youth so um so it was a big venture, really, which is why it took so long to to write, you know. And it and it is a long book. It's um it's one hundred and sixty thousand words and five hundred pages. So it's uh it's it's pretty comprehensive. It is very. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm so impressed because there is just so much more in it than than I expected. And I suppose doing having sort of doing this kind of a weekly radio show now, it's it's kind of interesting because I've slightly sort of gone. I must admit, I was I was kind of into all sorts of stuff like you know Terry and Jerry, as well as people yeah. like Lybark and also that American stuff. But then, sort of going back to the Marine Girls, 
and that sort of rather sort of acoustic sound in pop as well was has been nice well not nice but it's been interesting as well because in a way that had as much influence on the 80s indie scene I suppose as as punk in the sense that you didn't really have to sort of have big big guitars big amps and in, in a sort of a rock pose you know you couldn't you know it just it kind of broke down that kind of macho world that punk had sort of sort of become really that's right. And I mean, I think, I mean, the Marine Girls are wonderful and Tracy Thorne's um, solo album, um, A Distant Shore, um, I, I, I think is the sort of crowning glory, really. Um, but um, yeah, the, the kind of, the, you know, this, this, this goes back to the sort of, you know, what you might call the kind of unpop pioneers, Patrick Fitzgerald, Swell Maps, television personalities. These are people who are following a DIY tradition. And when they um, make their music, it's less important um, for them to be absolutely competent as musicians and, and, and more important for them to develop the sort of spirit of the ideas. Um, you know, I mean, the French term amateur, which in its original meaning means lover of, you know, is, is, is what these people really were. Um, there's a quote from Jeff Travis when he says that Swell Maps, when he met them, met them were like boffins tinkering in the garden shed. Um, and, and that was it. This was a sort of obsession with them. And, um, um, you know, and, and I think that studied, you know, there was a charm to it um, and there was a genuineness and a sort of naivety, which was all occurring at the same time as pop, independent pop music was starting to become more polished, more chic and more reflective of the kind of cold, um, you know, commercial 80s. Um, so that's another reason why it stands out and why it probably stands out more when one goes back to it. Yeah, well, I, I sort of realised now that they kind of occasionally, and I can remember it well, the, the mainstream charts of the 80s with that kind of Trevor Horn production sound and seeing Top of the Pops and, and that kind of, it seems such a different world than what was happening in those small clubs with slightly shambolic bands who didn't sort of who weren't selling vast quantities of albums and definitely weren't on M- MTV and didn't have and had no interest so it was it was a, an amazing dividing line of popular music in that way i mean there was also other things like the rise of hip hop and roots reggae as well but it yeah. it was quite a it was very interesting how watching those little clips of top of the pops thinking god you know that that's not my memory of the 80s at all well i, I think also that the um you know, there was there was a sort of cusp, really, I suppose, between about 83 and 84. And you had this kind of like, um, you know, 84 was the was the year of Frankie. Um, and um, but it was also the year when some of these independent entrepreneurs like Alan McGee and Simon Down with Pink um, really, you know, began getting into their stride and, and, and putting out and sort of creating, if you like, the sort of new indie Um but I think all of this also needs to be set against the backdrop of the, the way the world was at the time. You know, you had a fairly hardline conservative government. You had the miners' strike. Um, and, you know, we were living in a very socially divisive period. I mean, it's probably... I mean, it, 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 I think one reason why the book is doing so well is because it, 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 it resonates with today. Um, you know, we have a similar kind of government. We have a similar kind of structure where... Young people are, you know, you know, really largely tossed on the on the, on the scrappy or, or put to the side. So um, I think that gave everything focus. And we do like to keep focus. This 
And well, that was Neil Taylor, the second part of my interview. Still a little bit more to go. It's still going to be gripping. But anyway, I think we'll play another track. This from that golden decade. This is going to be the Bodines and the song titled Teresa. Nice, that's the Bodines and that's a track titled Teresa. This is David Eastall, this is the CD6 show and this is going to be the third part of my interview with Neil Taylor where we started, what I did, start talking about Red Wedge. I know, I always have to mention Red Wedge, don't I? But anyway, it has to happen. Here it is. Neil, what did you make of the Red Wedge movement? Take it away. Yes, I mean, Red Wedge, I think, suffered from um, the, the great difficulty of... Um, of you know hitching a political message to a a, a kind of um a, a rock and roll beat really um i i think it was a a, a genuine attempt to um 
you know to to engage young people and um you know the billy bragg is an absolute legend and um you know sort of um you know did did, did everything he could um but um you know it, it, you know in the end that sort of ran out of steam as well and um you know i i i personally believe that you know politics and music don't really mix i mean you can talk about the specials and you know various other things but um uh, i mean as 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 one observer says in the book you know never was a sort of political message more convincingly put than by the clash um and yet never was it so um you know kind of um badly followed through and um you know sort of um uh, you know i mean they 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 really didn't you know f- put into action what 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 they voiced Oh, yeah, the clash. And it's interesting because I know there's always academics and especially at the University of East Anglia who are always doing these studies on protest music and politics and does it make any difference? And and in sort of sadly, in my lifetime, you thought, well, actually, no, not at all. You know, the Conservative government got in, even though at the time the Red Wedge movement seemed to be quite optimistic. And then you see what happens in most countries like America and you know, and you think, well, I know all the all the sort of people like Bruce Springsteen, Beyonce can sort of do what they want, but at the same time, you know, we still get you know Donald Trump in in the White House. So in a way, it's it's a nice idea and it's good because otherwise you end up with bands like Coldplay or people singing about nothing. At least there was some message, but the message doesn't really sort of um, change the power of um, who's in government, really. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 interesting. You should mention Springsteen because, of course, Springsteen came over during the um, uh, his big stadium tour for Born in the USA. I think was in the summer of 1984, and he came over. And you know, you were looking here at somebody who was probably at the time the um, you know most popular pop musician on the planet. Um, and um, I only recently found out that, um, you know, after he'd played all his shows, he gave his PR an envelope and said, I want you to pass that to the miners. And um, then he went. And um, when they looked, you know, he'd written a check for sort of £40,000 or something to the miners. So, um, but done very subtly, which is probably the way to do it. Yes, yes. I, uh, bizarrely, I went to, there was, I think it was 85, because I think it was the same year that Live Aid, and I went to this sort of Bruce Springsteen concert at Wembley Stadium, because I think the following week there was Live Aid, and he'd left his kind of gear or rig, you know, for them to be able to use for that particular week, uh, that particular day. Yeah, so, um, yeah. makes sense, actually. It could have been that year. I mean, it was sort of, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, interesting you know the whole live aid thing was interesting you know that was another uh you know a, 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 a moment um it's just so many bizarre parallels because you know you had the miners and then you had the you know the, the famine in ethiopia um and um and, and you know we, we were all told that we needed to be caring and then you know in the sort of in the in the winter of in the December of 1984, when the Band-Aid single came out, you know, that was more or less coincided with the rise of the Jesus and Mary chain, who really, you know, wanted us to believe that they didn't care about anything. You know, I mean, the, the opening lyrics to, um, you know, never understand the sun comes up, another day begins and I don't even worry about the state I'm in. Um, you know, this was a sort of real 
um, nihilistic approach. Um, so all of this was just all feeding in and sort of, and I, and I think it was, you know, making it more interesting. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I mean, the eighties is still a fascinating decade for so many reasons, and um, yeah. So the other thing is that obviously doing a book like this, were there things that you discovered that you had had missed the first time? Um, yes, there was. Um, the main thing was that um, I took a, I wanted to write a book that was quite scholarly, but also accessible. Um, and a number of people have told me that I've, I've, I've managed to pull that off, um, by some fluke. Um, but, um, so the things I missed really with, were, were things where maybe I'd even been at events. And, um, when I came to relook at it historically, I found out much more about the circumstances than, um, than I, than, you know, than, than, than I'd been aware of. Um, I don't think there was anything music-wise that, that I felt I'd missed. Um, but then again, rediscovering things was, was great. Going back to the Milkshakes and, um, you know, a, a lot of those bands, uh, you know, I, I thought was, um, that, that was a, a, a reopening my eyes in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and obviously, you know, putting together a project like this, you know, and I often ask a lot of bands, you know, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? So, well, obviously not 18, but what would you, I mean, what would be your advice to any budding author putting together a book? Because obviously it's quite a colossal piece of work, isn't it? Well, um, you know, I think the, the only thing I would say is, you know, begin at, <laughs> I, I didn't begin at the beginning, but begin at the beginning wherever your beginning is. Um, and, um, you know, work, work, work away at it methodically. It, my experience of writing the book, and I'd already written um, a history of rough trade, so I'd got some experience of this, and I've worked in publishing for 20 years. But my experience of writing the book was that um, it takes a while to get the feel of what you're trying to do. Um, and some of the chapters in the middle of in the front section of the book, towards the end of the front section of the book, if you like, um, they, you know, they led me into what I was trying to achieve to the point where um, it flowed more easily and more satisfactorily. And then so that when I went back and looked, I didn't need to revise anything apart from those early two or three chapters I'd written because I was still trying to find my way. So anyone doing it needs to understand that you'll be finding a way for a while. And it will take a little bit of time before the thing clicks into place. Um, and you may have to go back and, and, and revise. Yes. And also at the end of the book, you mentioned that there are plans for um, volumes two and three. Yeah. It seems to me that um, I, did, I did deliberately, as I say, stop um, the C86 and all that book at, at, at the point where C86 comes out. Um, it's probably not so clear to other observers, but to me, having lived through the whole thing, um, it seems clear to me that there was some sort of dividing line. Um, not least because, as you say, C86 went through a period of um, being demeaned, almost um, you know, ridiculed. Um, um, I mean, I always consider this thing to have some sort of life of its own because it doesn't matter what people say about it. It seems to just go from strength to strength. Um, but I see this dividing line and I see the bands that came 
immediately on the cusp to Lula Gosh, Mighty Mighty, Sea Urchins, those sort of bands. I think they moved on the sort of ethos of the whole thing. Um, and um, and then you then then you are moving in also to a, to a sort of territory where um, we're we're buffing up against the mainstream, and you having bands like you know the Darling Birds and um, Pop Elite itself, and, and and many bands like this. And then in in you know I mean it, 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 in that late eighties, then of course you have all those kind of marvelous noise bands, many of whom started off as C86 bands and um, then just reconfigured their sound. I'm thinking here, you know, of, um, you know, My Bloody Valentine and Spaceman 3 and Loop and various bands like that. And then, of course, you have The Rise of the Stone Roses, although that's, I, I find The Stone Roses something slightly apart in the same way that I found The Smiths something slightly apart from the C86 um, thing. So the plan is to do volume two, taking the story up to more or less the end of the 90s. And then a final book, which um, probably would, um, um, you know, focus on the shoegaze aspect of the sort of last three, two or three years. But um, and then the whole, as I say in the book, you know, it seems to me to reflect that rise and fall of of the whole indie structure, which really came into place more or less around the time that Margaret Thatcher gained power and 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 and, and sort of collapsed around about the time that she went out of power i don't know what the parallel parallel is between thatcher and uh, the whole indie thing but there, there is a parallel there is a parallel yes i, I think so because it, it's kind of interesting because i suppose i put the indie scene down almost like the first smiths single and then their last album which was 87 and then after that yeah. bands like the sundays came along who were brilliant but it was almost like oh actually the party's kind of over and, and like you mentioned the american bands had slightly taken the baton and given it a little bit of a twist, hadn't they, with their, you know, Sonic Youth buttholes oh, and the, so, yeah. you know, so so they came along and gave it something to take it. And then, like you also said, the My Bloody Valentine. So the Sundays, I always felt a bit sorry for them because in a way they they were much more commercial than Tallulah Gosh, but it was almost like, well, it's kind of had its day. And then you had Nirvana. And then yeah. I suppose when you were saying about what would take in the book up to 82, it's almost like the, the birth of Britpop, which is then, you know. Yes, the, exactly. That, that's, yeah. a, that's a chapter which has all been done, really, hasn't it? I think so. I think so. And I find that less interesting. But, um, but you know, I'm sure if I looked at it, I would, I would find it more interesting. But um, who knows? Um, but, yeah, that, 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 that's sort of been done to death in a way. And that's the final part of my interview with the journalist Neil Taylor who alongside Roy Carr and also Adrian Thrills put together the original C86 cassette that came out on the NME. And um, like I mentioned, or we mentioned in there, Cherry Red Records have put together quite a lot of uh, compilations in the last few years, including C86, 7, 88 and 89. And they're all triple CD box sets with nice sleeve notes, pictures and everything you've ever wanted and much, much more. Anyway, that is the last part of my interview. A big thank you to Neil Taylor. Um, I'm not sure how you can get hold of the book. It might have even sold out. But do keep an eye on, I don't know, his uh, Facebook page, I do believe. I don't think he's got much of a web presence. But that is just irrelevant. This is the end of the show. If you want to contact me, you can via um, Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. 
all um, and all the archives is, uh, are available on Spotify, iTunes and uh, Podbeam. Just go to your usual sort of search engines and do C86 show and you'll find lots there. Anyway, have a great week and um, I'll leave you with some more music. This, I do believe it's going to be the June Brides and there might even be another bonus track. Anyway, have a great week. When I think of going and ride I go around in circles As I go to sleep at night And all the stupid tales we tell They never go nowhere I sometimes if I don't We dream of castles in the air The more that you tell me, the less clear it is to me The single first simple is now confused Words are new victims, so easily abused Na 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 And every conversation's the same Well, out the world in cliches, it's bound on things in name What I tried to hear should call my name I'm a trouble of confusions and other people's words Tomorrow I'll repeat what I just heard Whenever it comes to arguing I'm not quite where I stand I never know just where I'm gonna
Myself, 